It's always wonderful to see you. I mean that uh, from the bottom of my heart. I look forward to Sunday. I look forward to worshiping and to worshiping with you and to drawing encouragement as I see you worship. It helps me worship. Um, to consider the Word of God together. Um, it's wonderful to study the Bible individually, daily. It's rich, it's great. But there's something about hearing Scripture uh, read together, something about us hearing it and taking it to heart together at the same time that uh, involves a profound work of the Holy Spirit. It includes that. It's a wonderful means of grace. It's a part of our worship, to hear the Word and to hear it preached. And I'd just like to ask you if you'd join with me in prayer this morning. Our Father in heaven, I now ask, please, that you would make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. It really is good to see you this morning. And uh, standing up here, you know, I don't look at a group of people. I peg, fa- I peg faces as I go around the congregation. It's a wonderful thing. It's a blessing for me. Now, I'm going to do what I've done recently as we've been going through this book of Judges, which is to say I'm going to read texts uh, as I go through the sermon, not just at the very beginning, um, because we're covering large passages of Scripture. Um, As we come into these last five chapters of the book of Judges, we'll just be looking at chapter 17 and 18, not 19, 20, and 21, but we come into these last five chapters of Judges, and it is its own section of Judges. It makes up about a quarter of the book of Judges. There are no judges mentioned in the last five chapters of Judges. These chapters aren't about judges. They're about something else. Seven times to this point in, in the book of Judges, we've read this phrase, and, that, and you've heard it before if you've been with the series here, and that is that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. We've heard that seven times. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. But this evil has never been described in any detail. The focus has been on the judges God raised up. Now, in these last five chapters, there's no reference to judges at all, and it is this evil that is in view. It is this evil that is being described. These five chapters are an extended essay. essay. Uh, Chapters 17 and 18 really are um, about uh, an account of a religious apostasy in uh, Israel to show how twisted and how perverted uh, the people had become spiritually. And then chapters 19, 20, and 21 are really a dreadful count of moral depravity, not spiritual apostasy, and how twisted and perverted the people become then morally. And as I say, there's no judge in these accounts. There's no hero in these accounts. There's no good guy in these accounts. There's no protagonist in these accounts. Everyone in these accounts is compromised and serves to compromise others. And evil has become the norm. And they're not even aware, it seems, that this is the case. So this week, I'm dealing with a section on religious depravity or religious apostasy and it begins in chapter 1 chapter 17 rather verse 1 in this way it says there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah 
Just a whole new account. Micah, but not you, dear Micah. This Ephraimite, Ephraimite, person from the hill country of Ephraim, had taken 1,100 pieces of silver. He'd stolen it from his mama. And now he returns it to his mother after he hears her pronouncing a curse on whoever the thief is. We pick this up in verse 2. The 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, this is Micah talking to his mother, these 1,100 pieces of silver about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears. Behold, the silver is with me. I took it. He wanted no part of this curse. He wanted the silver. He didn't want the curse. And I think that his mama knew that he was the one who'd taken it. That's what I'm thinking. But then we want to pick it up in verse 3. His mother then announces. She says, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand to my son. I'm dedicating the silver to the Lord. From my hand, I'm giving it back to my son. Wow, what an amazing thing. That sounds great. But then she goes on to explain what that means. I'm dedicating this to the Lord from my hand to my son to make a carved image and a metal image. And now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he, rest so when he restores his money, his money to the, the money to the mother, the mother, the mother takes this money and she takes 200 pieces of the silver. She gives it to a silversmith who then made it into a carved image and a metal image and it is in the house of Micah. So this is terrible. I'm going to devote all this silver to the Lord. Micah, deal with this. But in fact, it's used to make an image, two images, one carved wood, another of metal poured into a cast. Micah creates this shrine, this little personal family temple for himself. And the Bible says, and he made an ephod, that was the garment of the priest, and a household gods, and he ordained one of his sons to become his priest. Somebody had to wear that ephod. Isn't that an amazing thing? So here's the mother. She says she's dedicating 1,100 pieces of silver to the Lord. Of course, she only uses 200 pieces. That's shades of Achan, isn't it, and Joshua, or Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts. But what's far, far worse is that she then uses those pieces of silver to pay for two images. And the images, as I say, are described as carved and as as molded or as metal images. And the Hebrew terms that are used there for carving, molded, are the technical words for idols. And Micah then makes these the centerpieces of his family worship, a family shrine or temple. He ordains his son to become a priest. <laughs> I mean, his priest, his son is not a Levite. Micah's from the tribe of Ephraim. His son is an Ephraimite. Uh, Micah is not the high priest of Israel. He has no authority to do this. And so when you hear just the opening part of these two chapters, what you're, what you're faced with and what, he's, and what Micah is doing is what we call sort of pluralism. Everybody gets to believe in God in their own way, sort of on their own terms, with their own practices, without regard to what God has said, and syncretism, which is that the God that is being worshipped is, well, he's been tweaked a lot. 
the one who's being worshipped has been tweaked a lot. There's a lot about this God that comes from biblical revelation, the history of Israel, a lot about this God that accommodates that culture and that ideal, but a lot about this God that does not. You ask the question, well, how can that be? How could he be doing this? And the answer is in the next verse. It's in verse 6. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And what that means is, that is to say, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes rather than what is right in God's eyes. I think... I think most people then and most people now do what they think is right. I think for the most part, there's some fringes out there, but for the most part, people do what they can justify themselves doing. They don't view themselves as evil. They don't want to be viewed as evil. Almost no one wants to be to be evil. But of course, the problem is that we so easily justify in our eyes what is evil in God's eyes. And I'm talking about beliefs, actions, attitudes, ways of relating to others that God says we're to have nothing to do with. And yet we, we, we do this and we justify it to ourselves. You know, we are not good at hating. We are not good at resenting. We're not good at coveting and lusting. We're not good at oppressing or dominating. We're not good at arrogance. And yet, these things are such a common feature of our lives. And when they're part of our lives, at the time, we feel very justified in that, and then in all the behaviors and conduct that flow from that. And when I say we, I really am talking this morning about us. Yes, everyone, but let's talk about the church. Let's talk about church people. I mean, what we feel, what you and I feel is right, or what we justify to ourselves is going to be very, very different. It's going to be a very different standard from what God has revealed and from what God has approved unless our standard really is the word of God and we are immersed in that standard. Unless that's true, we'll be far afield. No matter whether we come to church on Sunday, you know, it doesn't matter. Unless God's law is in our hearts, our hearts will be lawless. And so our lives will be lawless. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to, to write God's word in our, in our hearts. But that doesn't mean we're passive, we're some passive slate. This is the work that's God doing in our life in an ongoing way. And he has given us his word, his truth. Call it what it is. It is his law. It is authoritative. And honestly, if it is not being put in us, we're becoming lawless. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
There'll be no discipline of godliness. And godliness is a discipline. It is a discipline of life. Then the author of Judges names why it is that everyone did what was right in his own lies with a preface that he put on that statement. He says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. In those days, there was, there's no king in Israel. What was the issue? The issue was authority. The issue was there's no king. And we need a king. We need a king to reign over us. Not just any king. Not a king for king's sake. But a good king and a wise king and a just king who puts the welfare of his people above his own. And I want to ask you individually, personally today, just imagine you're Micah in the pew. I ask you this morning, do you have a king like that? And do you want a king like that over you? Because if we don't have a king like that over us, we are bound, we really are bound to ruin and to destroy our world, our nation, our families, ourselves. We need a king. And if we don't have a king, we will do what is right in our own eyes. So I'm asking you, do you have a king? Do you have a king? Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua all assume that God is king over Israel. And then we come to this book of Judges, sort of to a screaming halt, and we see that the entire nation repudiates this again and again and again. Yet because God is Israel's king and is sovereign, he's not going to be dethroned, although he is repudiated, God delivers the nation again and again and again. And the nation doesn't get it. Life would go so much better for you if you recognize who your king is and if you submitted to your king. You know, generically speaking, to believe in a God, to believe in a higher power, as we so often hear it today, and I think most people do believe in a higher power, is to accept that this God is over all things. But that God is just a concept. That God is, is, is an ideal or a notion. So the idea, the very idea of committing oneself to live under, live under his rule makes absolutely no sense because that higher power makes no demands or requirements on anyone. He's just the higher power. And so belief in the higher power is simply a matter of passive acceptance of a concept. But belief in the God of the Bible, to believe in the God of the Bible is to commit ourselves wholeheartedly to live under his rule. Because he is, he is a person, he's personal, he's real, he is eternal, he has come to us to know us, to draw us into relationship with him, and he's holy. And when this God became flesh, 
to dwell among us, to live among us, and to die for us, he made it clear, Jesus made it clear, very clear, that he calls for nothing less than our wholehearted commitment to him. Now you can eat, you can eat pork and you can eat beetles if you want to now, but he still calls for your wholehearted commitment to him. When Christ came, he came to save us on his terms, not on our terms. He is the true king over all. And we are lost without this king. You realize the very term Christ means anointed king. And so to trust in Christ is to accept him as our king and no longer do what is right in our own eyes. That's what it is. Go back to Judges. Along comes a Levite from Bethlehem looking for a place to live, to hang his hat. And Micah makes him a very lucrative offer. He gives him a clothing allowance. He gives him, promises him silver every year. He says, you'll be like a son to me and uh, I'll take you into my home. And, And Micah offers all this to him because the Levite, because that means then that Micah gets a real Levite for a priest. He didn't have one. Now he gets a real, now he's really legitimate. He's really legitimate religiously, spiritually in his life. And the, 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 the Levite agrees. And so the text says that Micah ordains him. Oh my word, Micah, he's just an ordaining fool, isn't he? He just has so much, too much time on his hands. And Judges 17, verse 13 then says, and then Micah said, now I know the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. Isn't that great? Now I know I'm going to be blessed and prospered. And here's the nub of false spirituality, really of depraved spirituality, both within the church, within Christianity, and outside of it, and it is this presumption that God, honestly, is as superficial as we are. That God will be pleased if we do what we please as long as we think it's right. <laughs> the God, this is really what it comes out. God will be pleased if we do what we please as long as it pleases us. And the answer is no, truth doesn't work that way. You may be very pleased with yourself. You may be very right in your own eyes. But truth does not, that's not the way truth works. And God is all about truth. Truth is not subjective. It exists regardless of what we happen to feel about it. It exists apart from what we happen to think about it. And truth In an absolute sense, truth is not objective either. In relation to us, it exists apart from us. I guess we can say it's objective that way. But truth really is not objective, not philosophically. Truth has no reality apart from God himself. So truth can't be reduced to some religious object that we possess, an image, an ephod, a Bible, The truth cannot be reduced to any religious act we perform or thing we do, coming to church, taking Lord's Supper, being baptized. No, there's no truth apart from the living God. 
and to try and separate truth from the living God is, is a complete folly. It's self-contradictory. And Jesus confirmed this when he said, I am the truth. He confirmed this when he said, if you are truly my disciples, if you follow me, if you follow my, you're truly my disciples, then you will know the truth. Really, there is no truth apart from God. None. None. God is not superficial, especially about spirituality. We cannot manipulate him with veneers of piety like we manipulate each other. <laughs> there's a crisis. There's a hurricane. There's a terrible climate. Well, people come to church in droves often. Well, we welcome them. We want people to come to church and but why, why are they coming? To, they think that this will make them more acceptable to God. They think that God will, that God will bless them because they do this. Hopefully they come to repent and to learn about God and to look for the Savior. But you know from the decay curve in church attendance after events like that, it really wasn't that way often. God is not superficial. And I think it's a fair question then to ask that how do we, who are in the Christian tradition, how do we know if we're descending into idolatry ourselves? The very kind of thing that we're, that we're seeing displayed in this passage. How do we know if we are descending into idolatry? And I think the answer, the short answer is this. When we start relating to Christ as if he was less than our king. Our holy, royal king, less than he's revealed himself to be, less than the authority who makes a legitimate claim and the only one who makes a legitimate claim to our entire life, a claim that eclipses any claim that we would make on our own lives. And when we start relating to Christ as if he is not our king, then we're relating to him as if he were someone that he is not. Someone lesser than who he is. You don't have to carve an image out of wood. You don't have to pour molten silver into a cast to be an idolater. You can make an image of God simply in the way you're thinking about him. When we become picky and choosy about the things God has told us about himself, or the things that he has commanded us, when we start adding our own touches to what he permits or to what he forbids, we are molding a customized deity to suit ourselves. And we may call it God in the Christian tradition. We may call it Jesus. This God that we're molding may include a crucifixion. It may include a resurrection. But it is worthless because it is an idol. So an army from Dan comes along, just like the Levite, and they stop at Micah's house. And they're on their way to conquer a city that the Lord never promised to give to Dan. And the Danites, of course, want God to bless them. So what do they do? They take the priest. They don't have a priest. 
And they take the images. They don't have images. They take the ephod. They didn't have an ephod. They take the household gods. They didn't have any household gods, at least that, that were helping them out. And with that, Micah says, oh, no, they have stolen my gods. Is that ridiculous that is? And Judges 18, verse 20 says, and the priest's heart was glad. He was glad to have the Danites come. And he was glad to be bought out from, from uh, to be traded from a family to a head of a family, a priestly head of a family, to the priestly head of a whole tribe. He got to be a big man. He, now he was priest of a mega church. And when you think about it, isn't religion really about faithfulness? And isn't faithfulness really a means to being successful? And isn't success really about numbers? The, the tribe of Dan thought so. The Levite thought so. Let me make a comment here. Think with me about this. Defection from God, the holy triune all-powerful God who's revealed himself to us in Christ. Defection from God does not start with desertion. It begins with distortion. Even in the midst of the symbols of our faith, the cross in the church, the Lord's table, the Bible at home, but unstudied. Defection from God begins when we lose touch with the king that he is and that Christ our savior is the very king of all kings we begin to lose touch with the king that he is and what he has done for us and what as king he requires of us that's where desertion begins or defection begins rather it's not desertion it's distortion and so we find ourselves going through the motions of worship. We find our hearts growing cold. We feel ourselves yearning for a city like the Danites that God has never promised to give to us rather than for the celestial city, a city made without hands whose builder and maker is God, which is where we are headed. We begin to feed yearnings that he's warned us against feeding. And soon we begin to think of Christ more as a concept as, you know, the Christ rather than as the person that he is and the king that he is. And the more we begin to think of him in terms of a concept, that concept becomes less and less compelling in our lives, in directing us, in guiding us. We need a king. And today I say to all of us, you need your king. Never mind who's on the throne of heaven. Who's on the throne of your heart? Let's pray together. Our Father, we love you and thank you for this portion of your word. Paul wrote that every scripture is breathed out by God. And that it's for us, it is to equip us, it is for our benefit. 
And here we see a scripture that's very dark and very difficult. But it is for us. And the diagnosis of the problem of Israel doing what is right in his own eyes was very simple. They had no king. I pray, God, that you would forgive us for living kinglessly and presumptuously and superficially. I pray, dear God, as we come to this table, that we be coming to Christ afresh, our Savior, and that he be coming to us. And you continue to have your work of grace in our lives. We know you will. Because apart from your work of grace, we will simply do what's right in our own eyes. And like Micah, we will, we will be so foolish. And we might even catch ourselves saying things like, they're stealing my God. Thank you, Lord. Amen.